So listening to the silence, the space that's here and now, it's a way to train yourself to not just sit down in a in the in the temple and think about everything else, your worries about the future and so forth, what to do with your life, and to bring always to this present moment. And of course, the body is like this, there's four postures, they're either sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, and breathing, inhaling, exhaling. Notice that it's like this, it's not, you know, refraining from making it personal, it is the way it is. Because at this moment, things are just like this, that's the way it is. And so we open, embrace them, the present here and now, like, like it is, whatever you're experiencing, pleasure, pain, happiness, depression, whatever the mood, whatever the physical condition you're experiencing is like this. So you have one more week to entering the Vasa, the Pansa, this traditional form in which we determine to spend the three months in the monastery, except on certain allowances. So this is a tradition. That's been carried through time. And during this time, you know, especially like in Thailand, for example, they, they uh, you know, they're dedicated to more serious practice, even though daily life any time of the day or night is serious practice. But the three months of the Vasa gives us a special time just per perceiving it as such. The main duty to break through the illusions of a self, a separate self. All the identities you have acquired in your life through the years whether they're positive or negative, it doesn't matter. They're, they're acquired perceptions and they influence how we see ourselves and the world we live in. 
So what to do with one's life? We ask ourselves, how do we, how are we going to live this life? Because it is an opportunity to do what? Just to survive, to procreate the species? Survive the, you know, the trials and tribulations of life till we die of old age? Hunt for food, sitting in my kuti, looking out at the garden and outside the window of my kuti, looking at the the birds and the squirrels desperately looking for food. <clears throat> and the squirrels, they don't have a sense of, of being a, a personality. They're conscious forms, forms in consciousness. <clears throat> but they don't have a language, uh, you know, about whether their parents loved them or didn't, whether they had good parenting, or they didn't, or they were, you know, being male squirrels or female squirrels, and all these distinctions that we create a sense of separateness, uniqueness. And this is a, what the suffering is about, of the First Noble Truth, is being separate in a vast universe in a vulnerable form, such as a human body, is lonely. When you see yourself only as some very separate individual person, unique personality, or a special, maybe you see yourself as especially, have a special mission in life, or a special profession to accomplish or whatever, whether it's special or ordinary, high or low, whether it's royalty or poverty. These are all acquired perceptions. They're not, they're not like squirrels don't see themselves in, the, in terms of, of uh, being upper class or lower class. at least as far as I know. So, these, this whole thing, this class structure, gender identity, even religious identity is an acquired identity. So I emphasize this over and over, what we acquire in life is condition. So from birth, you know, we have we, we don't, I'm born with that sense of a separate self. Conscious form, human form, infant form. And then we acquire this sense of our separateness, our uniqueness, our ordinariness, our superiority or inferiority, our acquired identities that we get through the conditioning process. So in meditation, the whole point is get to the source. Find the source of all this. Where, like returning almost to infancy, to that pure state of a pure awareness. 
pure conscious awareness that it's not conditioned. It's not cultural, it's not, it doesn't have a, a name or an identity. We give it a name, we call it consciousness or mindfulness. But even then, it's not, it's not a word. Like the word consciousness is an interesting word these days because nobody knows what it is. And we're trying to find it, trying to look for it, you know, trying to scientifically prove, is it the brain or is it, you know, you know, you can, and so by investigating, you know, through this, this technique of vipassana insight practices that we inherit in this tradition, is all about getting to the source Yoniso Manasika, I get to the very source of being present here and now, consciousness here and now. So when I started this reflection, I was saying the silence, the space is here and now. Maybe your mind isn't silent. Maybe you've got all kinds of thoughts, doubts, worries, personal problems, hopes, expectations, or fears. But if you let go of all that, what remains when you've let go of all these conditions is kind of blissful silence. So when we talk about does the word bliss is a kind of problematic word because we tend to associate the word with the kind of drug addiction where you blissed out on some, due to some kind of chemical reactions where you feel absolutely euphoric and happy and at one with the universe due to various drugs or conditions. But the bliss of silence isn't conditioned. It's here and now. And in this temple, you know, it's this what I really like about this building is that there is a silence that one it resonates very clearly, at least for me, inside this temple. But the temple is in the silence, you know. So the temple is is not necessary for silence. But when we come into the temple, you know, it's a reminder. We might be caught up with our duties, our responsibilities, our position, our doubts and worries. And then, you know, we bring those into the temple and we sit down and we start worrying about the future or getting carried away with our feeling of responsibility, duty, our position what to do with our lives. All this is, is uh, can go, you know, the mind can keep very busy inside this temple. So learning to use the temple for awareness. So that's why I like to, to 
begin the, these kind of reflections on how to see the, the stillness, the silence, the space, not just come in and sit down with all your worries and problems, but to recognize that the, the temple is a kind of sign, a kind of symbol of that. The Buddha Rupa, the Buddha Rupa on the shrine. You know, we can see it in terms of it's a golden image, whether we, we think it's beautiful or we don't, we think it's overpowering or it's, it's necessary or it's unnecessary. We might have all kinds of opinions and views about Buddha Rupas, Buddha images, but that's not using them for awareness. It's merely being caught up with personal prejudices, biases, preferences that we, we not, may not notice. We're caught up with our aesthetic tastes, our refinements, our religious conditioning. And we, we don't see what we're doing. We just operate from habit, from tradition, from conditioning. So that's why we suffer, because we're not conditioned. Our true nature isn't a condition. If our true nature was conditioned, then there'd be no possibility of ending suffering. You know, if we are just what we think we are, believe we are, and the world that we, we believe is the world that we believe in, the material world, the emotional world that we experience, the conditioned world, cultural identities, all these are and artificial conditions. Just like the Buddha Rupa is an artificial condition. So when we approach the Buddha Rupa or the temple merely from the condition level of personal taste or appreciation or of adverse opinions, you know, then we're we're identifying ourselves with the conditioned realm. And that's not what Buddha Rupas are meant to be. They're not to be about aesthetics or, or golden images or things like that. They, they can be used. They're not absolutely necessary. If they're around, it's like this. If they're not around, there's still the silence, the space the awareness here and now. So on a cultural level, we're conditioned to have our sense of duty, responsibility, our position, what, what a good 
women should be, a good man should be, ideals of perfection in terms of the gender, in terms of government, democracy, equality, freedom, justice, fairness, all these, these fine words are conditions. You know, how to use them then for awareness rather than just operate from the, just individual reactions to these words. It's like, how do we, you know, we can use the Buddha Rupa on the shrine for awareness or our, just form opinions about it. Or just ignore it. But symbols do have an effect on us because the, these forms are conditioned. You know, the, the body that you identify is a condition. It's an empty phenomenon. It's not a real solid person, you know, a special person a soul or individual uh, that is special in any way other than it is a condition in this realm of conditioned phenomena. So, you know, instead of seeing oneself always from the limitation of mortality, you know, seek your identity with the unconditioned Make a stand with the unconditioned. And what is that? The silence, the space that's present here and now. So in bhavana, it's really learning to recognize the silence. That's the very background, the, the substratum of all the changing forms, the emotions we feel, the thoughts, the doubts, the worries the habit patterns, the identities, social, religious identities. Buddhism itself is, is a condition. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they're all conditions, artificial conditions created by human beings. So when we grasp the the forms without wisdom, without getting to the source, then we become Buddhists, we become Christians, we become Jews, Muslims, we become something that is separate from something else. So Buddhism is separate from Christianity in terms of the condition. So we live in this realm of separateness. And that's what suffering is about, being identified always in this lonely, isolated form that's dependent on food, survival, shelter, clothing,
So the form, you know, this is in this particular Thai forest tradition, the, the emphasis on the four requisites. The Buddha allowed, you know, these four requisites to be reflected upon again and again. Why is that? Because come from most of us come from affluent backgrounds. Standard of living at this time worldwide is pretty high. You know, so life here in the UK is the standard that that ordinary people are accustomed to is pretty high standard of comfort, luxury, and convenience. And then in the Thai forest tradition, it, in the early stages of my monastic life in Thailand, you know, it was, uh, the shelter was a kuti, wooden hut with a tin roof. The robes were provided, these kind of dun-colored robes, bindabat food, medicine, which is very in Thailand and in Wat Pong at that time, there was a lot of herbal medicines. Ajahn Chah was an expert herbalist, knew all the medicinal properties of the various things that grow in the forests in Thailand. So this is bringing life, you know, the, the material identities down to a kind of a basic survival. And even though, you know, the standard for monasticism is definitely higher than it used to be, the kind of comforts and availabilities, central heating, and we have iPads, iPhones, things like this that But the point is not to say we have to go back to, to no electricity and to just survival and the four requisites as to be true samanas, to be true mendicants, because that is another identity. Being a, a real mendicant is another sense of separateness and, and oftentimes sense of superiority. So what is the answer to these questions? Is it to, you know, to what do we do with our lives as individual human forms? And of course, the thing that attracted most of us to Buddha Dhamma was it gave us a, a tool, a convention, a form, to use, to reflect upon, not to become the form and to, you know, identify, blindly identify with Buddhism or with the Thai forest tradition or with monasticism, but it's, it's all symbolic, all artificial conditions to how to use these conditions that, that we're using in this monastery with awareness, with wisdom,
So wisdom, what is that? You know, is a, when we use that word, it's a common enough English word. And then so many of you think you're not wise or believe I'm wise or Ajahn Amaro is wise or maybe you can back was wise. But what do we mean by wisdom? What is the real, when we get to the, the source of reality, of Dhamma, what, where does wisdom lie? What is it? that is truly wise. And this is available to all of us. It's not about me being wiser than the rest because I've been a monk for so long. That's a construction, isn't it? A mental construction that you create. This whole construction of Ajahn Sumedho is is conceptual. In terms of my reality, you know, the form is now getting very old. The, the physical body, so it's like this. When I identify with the age of the body, <clears throat> then, you know, then the habit patterns of who wants to be old and what happens when I die, will I be reborn? I've been a monk 55 years or more and uh, I've dedicated my life to, to meditation, to Buddhism, and will I be reborn? Am I a stream enterer or an arahant? Or what am I? Or am I just a vitujana, an ordinary, unenlightened individual? You know, these are questions that we ask ourselves. When we identify with the forms, You know, am I as wise as Lung Po Cha? Or uh, is he wiser than I am or vice versa? You know, these are all thoughts, perceptions, concepts, objects of the mind. But the silence is here and now, uncreated. It doesn't come and go. You know, as you cultivate awareness, the silence becomes the prominent reality because it's here and now all the time, whatever happening, whatever posture you're in, whatever emotions you're experiencing, whatever if it's day and night, or you're healthy or sickly. So learning to, to recognize, realize silence, the space between the thoughts, the, the space between the words, uh, 
is silent. When you ask yourself a question, what's the purpose of life? You know, you might come up with some, you know, you say, quote, some philosopher or Buddha or Ajahn Chah, what's the purpose of life? And then I, you know, you say, Ajahn Sumedha, what is the purpose of life? And I could give you an answer to that, an intellectual answer. And so you grasp that, you know, Ajahn Sumedho told me this, the purpose of life, but you don't really know that. You don't know the purpose of life because you, because somebody else gave you the answer to your question. You can believe what they say, but that's another artificial condition that you're grasping. So getting to the source, is awareness, is the gate, the door to the deathless. Amatasatavara, the gate to the door to the deathless. Here and now, it's not about cultivating mindfulness as a practice in order to become enlightened anymore, because all that is still conditioned self-references of duty, having to do something, having to meditate, having to get somewhere in your practice, or you're not, you've been practicing uh, some form of meditation for years now and you haven't gotten anywhere, or you've got a level of samadhi, I've reached, uh, you know, I have a panna samadhi, I'm really accomplished, it's still, the perception of a separate self that's attained something. And anything you attain, whether you believe it or not, is a condition. This whole sense of attaining, achieving, getting somewhere, becoming enlightened, is all conceptual, proliferating concepts. It's what you've heard, what you, the jargon of this tradition, So in the silence, there's no concept. Silence isn't a, you know, the word silence is a concept, but it's just a concept to remind us of here and now. And as you determine to, re to realize the silence, the substratum of our existence, where existence arises and ceases, then the purpose of life is no longer a problem, no longer a question in the mind. The questions all dissolve into the silence. Because all conditions arise and cease. What do they arise and cease in? Do they just come from thin air or, you know, is it, is it, uh, you know, if they arise, they've got to arise from something, and the cease, they must cease into something. What's left when, when the conditioned world is ceased? 
And we, we learn this not through grand visions of the universe that we live in suddenly ceasing according to the, the idea of cessation, but realize that cessation is going on all the time. The, the thoughts arise and cease. And if you observe, if you're the puto, the observer of thought rather than the thinker, then you notice the, the absence of thought. You don't notice the absence of thought if you're always trying to find it as a concept, trying to find a silence as, you know, some, some goal to achieve, something to get, to develop, to cultivate, as some kind of personal endeavor. Or seeing through the limitation of personality, sakya ditti silabhata it's all, you know, these first two fetters. And, you know, from personal experience, not being a person is a great relief. To realize all the fears, vanity, selfishness, worries, anxiety habits, depression, jealousy, guilt and remorse, endless psychological conditions arise and cease that we cling to, identify with, or suppress. They're all illusions that we believe in and see in highly personal terms. When you let go of that, when you get to the very source of here and now, the silence, the space is like this. Trust that. That is insight into what we call the path or some right understanding. And when we have that understanding, it's an insight knowledge, it's not acquired knowledge because you can recite you know, probably all of you can recite the eight factors of the eight, eight steps of the Eightfold Path in Pali or translate them into English or French or any other language. So it's not knowing the, the eight steps, the eight factors, eight steps of enlightenment of the path, of the Eightfold Path, but in trusting in awareness. a simple, spontaneous reality of here and now that is uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, unborn, that is not personal. It's anatta, not, not a personal separate self. And this is what we call relief. You know, suddenly it, it's suddenly the burden of life all the difficulties that, that one creates 
as a personality, even living in a sangha, personal relationships, seniority, titles, gender problems between monks and nuns, anagarikas, anagarikas, all these identities. You know, we can create endless problems, uh, uh, personal reactions to these identities. So we create the suffering out of this ignorance of icha, not knowing true, not knowing Dhamma, reality itself. One time I read in a Zen book, Zen describing the experience of nirvana. And they said it's like, nirvana is like when you've been carrying this heavy burden on your back for a lifetime and you're really exhausted. You're so tired of this weight, carrying this heavy weight around that you put it down. And that's nibbana, relief. So not being a person, not feeling attached to any position, it doesn't mean we, we have to get rid of our tradition or our position in the Sangha. This is convention only. But see it as convention, you know, as just a, a skillful means which the true practice isn't about becoming a monk or a nun, but in realizing Dhamma, awakening to reality. So that's why I say, you know, then really know, observe, be the observer of what you think you are. Listen to, to your ego. You're not trying to get rid of the ego. You know, it's not something you've got to get rid of or, or make judgments about whether you're conceited or you feel inferior, it doesn't make any difference. These are all conditioned identities. Whether you tend to be arrogant and bossy or think you know it all or you're, you're, you're full of doubts and worries, listen to, to whatever goes on in your mind because it's conditioned. And your, your position is puto, awakened awareness, knowing. It's like this. And letting it be what it is. So it's not a matter of changing or getting rid of it, but realizing the emptiness of self-conceit, of arrogance, of feelings of superiority, of feelings of worthlessness or inferiority. Whatever your tendencies, personal tendencies might be, it's not about you all have to become humble individuals and practice humility as some ideal, because humility is a, is a beautiful idea, 
but just trying to be humble as a person can be another form of sakyaditi. You think you believe you're more humble than somebody else who's very arrogant. And all that is a self-creation, isn't it? A creation of comparing yourself with somebody else, your opinion about somebody else's behavior or attitudes is like this. You know, so whether it's true or false, right or wrong, that's not the issue anymore. It's being the puto, the knower of the way it is that all conditions arise and cease and in the cessation is peace. So when, when somebody dies, in Thailand, for example, they, when somebody, because most Thais are Buddhists, they call the monks to chant just this simple chant, Anicca Vodasankara Ubatava Yatamino Ubatitava Niruchanti Desang Ubasamosukho two-line chant, the saying, all conditions are impermanent, what arises ceases, and in their cessation is peace. So in the, the simple two-line phrase that is part of a tradition, Pali tradition, there is real wisdom there. Even though oftentimes you're chanting it just because it's part of a tradition. But then you realize that anicca vadasana, all conditions are impermanent. And then you, you got to know conditions, be, not, be the unconditioned awareness of conditioned phenomena. This is what Bhutto, Bhutto, what Buddha, the word Buddha really means, you know, in a practical way, not in a just traditional form. So in my life as a monk, you know, just seeing the end of suffering and just letting things be what they are. I conform physically to the Vinaya and physically and verbally, try to anyway. But that's a choice because I see it as a tool rather than as some kind of personal duty or responsibility. Then the emphasis that Rumpo Chow has made on this Bhutto, this mantra, Buddha, it actually is the name of Buddha, which means awakened consciousness, the unconditioned reality of here and now. So when we take refuge in Buddha, this is what, you know, it's not taking refuge in a traditional form, in a word or in a concept or an ideal. It's the reality, practical reality of being aware. Because even the word Bhutto is a condition. So it's not grasping the word, but what the word reminds us when we get carried away with our personal conditioning. 
is an opportunity to be aware of it. So when you, you know, you're caught up in worry or anxiety about the future or what to do with your life, how should I spend my life? And, you know, or should I become a monk or a nun or should I, you can get in line without becoming a monk or a nun or, or what's the best thing I can do? Listen to, I'm not saying you have to answer these questions, but listen to yourself thinking, the doubting, what should I do with my life? Because those are words. And behind those words is the silence, the eternal silence of here and now. Underlying those words of what should I do with my life? It's a silence that is non-suffering. Silence doesn't suffer. because it's the unconditioned. So when you take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and these forms, you're taking refuge in the unconditioned, not the words of the unconditioned, but the reality, which is what you really are. You know, so the problems drop away. as you see their cessation, not that you suppress them or get rid of the problems, you allow problems to arise, you listen, you're aware, and they're like this, you're patient, allowing them to abide and cease, and you're aware of their beginning, their middle, their end, and that which is aware of the beginning, middle, and end is the deathless. So in this, encouraging on this pansa, this vasa, which will begin next week, you know, you're hearing me, you know, you're a sodawanta, one who's listening. Pamunjantu satang, which means trust this. You know, you can't trust what you think because it's, it's always changing. And thinking is dependent upon other conditions. So how can you ever find peace or happiness in something that you can't, you know, that is just uncertain, unstable. You know, we tend to seek permanent happiness, finding the right relationship, the perfect mate, the one that was made for me in heaven by God. You know, that's a romantic notion. But mates, wives or husbands, partners, 
they're all unstable conditions. You know, they're changing. They have their karmic tendencies and habits that are different from oneself. You know, so how can you expect somebody else to be a permanent form of happiness for you throughout your life? You know, that's the kind of Cinderella story. Living happily ever after is a fairy tale. Because the conditioned realm is this continuous changing, incessant, inexorable change that we're experiencing every moment through these forms. So even when you have this insight into the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, the form is still getting old. The weather changes, the time day or night changes, the seasons change. Your emotions still, your habitual patterns of emotional reaction change. But the, the difference between an aware individual and an unaware individual is the aware individual meditator is aware that all conditions are impermanent, they're not self. And that's a relief. You're not the limited thing that you believe you are. No matter how special you might feel or how arrogant or conceited you might be as a personality or how hopelessly screwed up or inferior you feel, all these are to be recognized as conditioned phenomena. They're empty. They're not what one is. So I offer this as a reflection.